You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray, the Biographical Civil War Podcast, Episode 2, Ulysses Grant, Part 2. It was a sunny spring morning in western Tennessee, April 6, 1862. A Union army consisting largely of barely trained green troops was in chaos. A large rebel force led by General Albert Sidney Johnston, the overall commander of the Confederate Western Department, had launched a surprise attack on the right flank of the Union Army, camped near Pittsburgh Landing and commanded by Ulysses S. Grant. Recently reappointed to command after his superior officer, Henry Halleck's attempts to discredit him through rumors and innuendo had been sharply rebuked by Washington. The Union right had been pushed back, nearly a mile, and Grant was struggling to rally his men to prevent a rout. The rebel attack was vicious. According to Grant, the Confederate assaults were made with such a disregard of losses on their own side that our line of tents soon fell into their hands. He hadn't been camped with the army when the fighting broke out. He was at his headquarters in a commandeered mansion a few miles away. Upon receiving news of Johnston's attack, Grant immediately called for General Don Carlos Buell, who was leading another Union army a few miles away, to rush to Pittsburgh Landing in all haste. Then Grant hopped on a steamboat and set off to join his men. He rode up and down the line on horseback, remaining calm despite the bitter fighting and bullets and shells whizzing through the air. As usual, he held an unlit cigar in his mouth. After a post-Donaldson profile of Grant appeared in Harper's Weekly, informing the public of his love for cigars, admiring readers had sent boxes upon boxes to the general, so that he now enjoyed an almost endless supply. The rebel onslaught continued through the late afternoon, with the Union forces pushed back nearly to the Tennessee River. Grant described the first day of Shiloh in his memoirs, quote, There was no hour during the day when there was not heavy fighting, and generally hard fighting at some point on the line. It was a case of southern dash against northern pluck and endurance. Three of the five divisions engaged on Sunday were entirely raw, and many of the men had only received their arms on their way from their states to the field. Many of them had arrived but a day or two before, and were hardly able to load their muskets according to the manual. Their officers were equally ignorant of their duties. Under these circumstances, it is not astonishing that many of the regiments broke at the first fire." Unquote. Now, Grant was partially to blame for the near disaster. He thought the rebel troops consolidating around nearby Corinth, Mississippi, uh, about 50,000 altogether, would dig into entrenched positions and await his approach, as Albert Sidney Johnston had thus far demonstrated a predisposition to defensive fighting. Grant was camped about 20 miles north of Corinth at Pittsburgh Landing in a position recommended by his friend and division commander William Tecumseh Sherman uh, because it allowed plenty of open space for drilling the green troops and protection on both flanks in the form of two creeks flowing into the Tennessee River. 
they were waiting on Halleck's orders to join with Buell on his way from Nashville. Grant had favored immediate pursuit of the rebels after Donelson. But Halleck's position was, quote, we must strike no blow until we are strong enough to admit no doubt of the result, unquote. And so Grant was forced to delay his attack until Buell arrived, and then together they would march south. Grant had misjudged his opponent, and he had become overconfident after his victory at Donelson. After Donelson, Grant had written, quote, The war is on its last legs, and the enemy too demoralized to constitute a danger. The temper of the rebel troops is such that there is but little doubt, but that Corinth will fall much more easily than Donelson did when we do move. All accounts agree in saying that the great mass of the rank and file are heartily tired, unquote. But Johnston and his second-in-command PGT Beauregard had other ideas. Instead of digging in at Corinth, they decided to launch a surprise attack on the unsuspecting Yankees. They were hoping to defeat Grant before Buell arrived, and thereby provide the Southern people with a decisive victory to restore morale after the recent string of setbacks out west. Grant had neglected to fortify his position, afraid that doing so would send the wrong message to the men. A few days before, uh, in a letter to his beloved Julia, he confided, quote, Soon I hope to be permitted to move from here, and when I do, there will probably be the greatest battle fought of the war, unquote. Now, Grant was half right. Shiloh would be the greatest battle yet fought in the war, but he didn't need to leave Pittsburgh Landing to find it. Johnston, a former general in the armies of both the United States and the Republic of Texas, and who, like Robert E. Lee, had opposed secession prior to the war, had come looking for Grant. As the first day's fighting progressed, Johnston's conduct paralleled Grant's along the opposing line. Riding up and down the rebel lines, he encouraged his men to press the attack and inspired them with his bravery. Jefferson Davis thought Sidney Johnston the best general in the Confederate Army, a greater leader of men than even R.E. Lee. But where at Shiloh, both Grant and Johnston showed a courageous disregard for the dangers of battle while rallying their men, only Grant would survive the encounter. For as Johnston encouraged his men to overcome the resistance uh, Grant was rallying his men to raise, the rebel general was hit in the leg by a stray shot from a Union rifle. Leg wounds were often recoverable, uh, though frequently requiring amputation, but in Johnston's case, it was not to be. The ball found an artery, leaving Johnston to bleed to death on the field, and leaving Beauregard in command of the rebel army and Grant facing a lesser, though still formidable, adversary. Jefferson Davis would later describe the death of the valiant Johnston as, quote, the turning point of our fate, unquote. On being informed that he was now in command, a shaken Beauregard halted the assault in the evening, rather than continuing to press Grant's retreating army into the twilight. He set up his headquarters in the tent formerly occupied by Grant's friend, William T. Sherman, whose division had taken the brunt of the initial attack, and then he called it a day. The rebel attack had been scheduled to begin two days earlier, but poor coordination, bad weather, and worse roads caused a critical delay. That delay, along with Beauregard's decision to halt in the evening, allowed Buell's army to arrive in time to affect the outcome of the battle. But upon his arrival, Buell didn't really see it that way. He began discussing with Grant the best means to withdraw across the Tennessee River during the night. And it would be tricky. Grant had 30,000 men, but only sufficient transport boats for 10,000. But that was immaterial to Grant. He wasn't having any talk of retreat. 
he intended to continue the fight the next day and told Buell, quote, If I have to cross the river, 10,000 will be all I shall need transport for, unquote. He would not leave the field until his army had been defeated. And as Grant saw it, that hadn't happened yet. The fight had only just begun. That night was marked by a cold, hard rain. Many of the unsheltered Union soldiers, after losing their tents to the pursuing Confederates, were forced to sleep on the field in the cold mud. Now Grant, uh, who had suffered a badly sprained ankle when his horse slipped and fell on him two days earlier, but who was otherwise no worse for the wear, met personally with each of his division commanders. He directed them to send out skirmishers first thing in the morning with orders to find the enemy and attack. He reckoned the rebels had burned themselves out in the prior day's fighting and were ripe for a counterpunch. So now, reinforced by Buell, the Union army would be stronger the next day, despite the heavy losses already sustained. The worn-out Confederates, on the other hand, lacked the luxury of reinforcement. The commander's optimistic outlook raised the morale of the officers, who were in turn able to reorganize many of the green Union soldiers that had fled the field upon seeing the elephant for the first time, and upon hearing six divisions of shrieking rebels yell as they came pouring out of the woods that morning. Where most of the officers had been ready to retreat, after meeting with Grant and hearing him say, Retreat? No, I propose to attack at daylight and whip them. They were ready for round two. When Sherman observed, Well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? Grant replied laconically, Yes, lick them tomorrow, though. And he was right. Beauregard's force had been reduced to 25,000 by casualties. And with the addition of Buell, Grant fielded 40,000 men on the second day of Shiloh. And Beauregard had no inkling that Buell had arrived. In fact, Beauregard had already sent word of victory to Richmond. He anticipated that the next day's fighting would be limited to the pursuit of the retreating Yankees. Now, Cavalry Commander Nathan Bedford Forrest had observed Buell crossing the river and tried to warn Beauregard that the situation had changed, but the Cajun general couldn't be located. And the other Confederate generals, Forrest informed of Buell's arrival, just brushed him off. Grant's early morning attack caught Beauregard as flat-footed as Grant had been the day before. By four o'clock, Grant's men had recovered their former lines, and the rebels were in retreat. What one day earlier had appeared to be a disappointing defeat at the hands of Johnston, Grant had managed to turn into a decisive victory over Beauregard. Once again, Grant led from the front, traveling up and down the lines on horseback with a cigar in his mouth. But at one point, Grant nearly met the same fate that Johnston had found the day before. The Union commander was saved from a mini-ball with his name on it when the ball deflected off of his sword, preventing what would otherwise have been a serious wound, or worse. Had Grant shared Johnston's misfortune he would have been only one of thousands to sacrifice their lives over those two pitiless days in western Tennessee. Grant himself provides a vivid summary of the battle's savagery. Quote, Shiloh was the severest battle fought at the West during the war. I saw an open field in our possession on the second day, over which the Confederates had made repeated charges the day before. So covered with dead that it would have been possible to walk across the clearing in any direction, stepping on dead bodies without a foot touching the ground. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part two of our portrait of Ulysses S. Grant. In part one, we looked at Grant's early life and antebellum career, 
and saw Grant endure failures in his private life before ascending to national prominence at the beginning of the war. In part two, we'll see Grant earn his way to command over nearly all of the Union forces in the Western theater. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Grant had hoped to follow up the Shiloh victory by crushing the injured rebel army as it withdrew, but tired troops and poor weather conditions prevented the pursuit. He reported to Halleck after the fighting had concluded, My force was too much fatigued from two days hard fighting and exposure in the open air to a drenching rain during the intervening night to pursue immediately. The failure of other Union generals to follow up on victories was a continuous source of frustration to the authorities in Washington. But Grant had already earned enough of a reputation as a fighter that his decision not to pursue after Shiloh seems to have been accepted at face value. After the intense and bloody fighting, Grant was firmly convinced that the war would never be won in a single battle. He and many other Union leaders had started to believe that uh, after the Donelson victory, the Confederate Western forces were teetering on the edge of collapse. Now he knew better. In Grant's words, after Shiloh, he gave up all idea of saving the Union except by complete conquest. The rebel army would only give up if it was utterly destroyed. But Shiloh was something of a turning point in the Western theater in that Grant had firmly seized the initiative, and he wouldn't relinquish it, uh, while the rebel forces out west thereafter would mostly remain on the defensive. The victory at Donaldson had made Grant a hero in the press, but he was severely criticized for the heavy losses sustained at Shiloh, around 13,000 Union casualties all told. He was justifiably faulted for his lack of preparation, and for being caught off guard. So a lot of the credit for the victory on the second day went to Buell, who had actually been ready to retreat. Rumors that Grant had been caught unaware because he had been drinking, or because he was hungover, swirled throughout the army and in Washington. In a telegraph to McClellan, Halleck was eager to contribute to the gossip. Quote, A rumor has just reached me that since the taking of Fort Donelson, General Grant has resumed his former bad habits. If so, it will account for his neglect of my oft-repeated orders, unquote. And one of the so-called radical Republicans, Alexander McClure of Pennsylvania, scheduled a meeting with Lincoln for the purpose of requesting Grant's removal from command. But despite the fickleness of the press and of some politicians, Grant still had Lincoln's confidence. To McClure, Lincoln famously responded, I can't spare this man. He fights. In his memoirs, Grant would defend his performance at Shiloh, arguing that the green troops he was commanding benefited more from the additional training that he opted for than they would have from digging trenches. And he still had some supporters in the media. The New York Times, for example, wrote of Grant after the victory at Shiloh, quote, He is a man of plain exterior, light hair, blue eyes, five foot nine in height, plain and retiring in his manners, firm and decisive in his character, esteemed by his soldiers, never wastes a word with anyone, pays strict attention to his military duties. His personal bravery and dash is undoubted. He is one of the hard-fighting school of generals. Unquote. Nonetheless, after the battle, Halleck declared that he would be moving his headquarters to Pittsburgh Landing and taking direct command over the army, which meant, in effect, that he was taking Grant's army away from him. And Grant knew and resented it. 
Like McClellan after the Seven Days, Grant would be a general without an army. I felt that censure was implied, but did not wish to call up the matter in the face of the enemy, he later wrote of the incident, describing his position as differing little from that of one in arrest. Grant had wanted to regroup and then march in pursuit of the rebels, who had retreated back to Corinth. Halleck, on the other hand, stayed in camp, leaving Grant and the rest of the army idle. Idleness was always difficult for Grant. So he wrote a letter to Halleck requesting either restoration to command or relief from further duty at his present station. Halleck's response was unexpected. He asserted that he was actually doing Grant a favor by shielding him from the D.C. politicians who were out to get him. And of course, it was true that Shiloh had turned quite a few politicians against Grant. But this is the same Halleck who not too long ago had written to McClellan about Grant, quote, He left his command without my authority and went to Nashville. His army seems to be as much demoralized by the victory of Fort Donelson as was that of the Potomac by the defeat at Bull Run. It is hard to censure a successful general immediately after a victory, but I think he richly deserves it. And I can get no returns, no reports, no information of any kind from him. Satisfied with his victory, he sits down and enjoys it without any regard to the future. I am worn out and tired with his neglect and inefficiency. Unquote. Halleck wasn't genuinely protecting Grant. If anything, he was as responsible as anyone else for stirring up the negativity toward Grant by badmouthing him whenever he thought he could get away with it. But once again, the one opinion that truly mattered, and that was Lincoln's, was still solidly behind Grant. Halleck delayed at Pittsburgh Landing long enough to allow Beauregard to withdraw from Corinth, removing his army from the easy grasp of the Union would-be pursuers. At this, Grant grew even more frustrated and decided to resign and go home to Illinois. But before he left, his friend General Sherman, who had learned that Grant had requested a 30-day leave, uh, which he interpreted as a prelude to resignation, determined to talk him out of it. Sherman confronted Grant, asking him why he was leaving. Grant responded, Sherman, you know, you know I am in the way here. I have stood it as long as I can and can endure it no longer. Now, Sherman knew all about how capricious army politics could be, and using his own recent experiences as an example, counseled Grant that, if he stuck around, quote, some happy accident could restore him to favor and his true place, unquote. Grant would agree to hold off on leaving, uh, and he promised that if he did decide to leave, he would talk to Sherman first. Sherman then followed up their conversation with a note that reveals exactly who Sherman believed to be at the heart of both of their troubles. Sherman writes, quote, There is a power in our land, the press, which has created the intense feelings of hostility that have arrayed the two parts of our country against each other, which must be curbed and brought within the just limits of reason and law before we can have peace in America, unquote. The press, according to Sherman, was a public enemy. Now, we'll certainly be doing an episode on Sherman before long, but uh, suffice to say, he despised the press with a passion, due in no small part to the stories of Sherman's allegedly questionable hold on sanity, which had circulated not long before. Uh, but regardless of Sherman's deep loathing for the press, which would never really subside, Grant was touched by his friend's concern, and Sherman had succeeded in convincing Grant to stay with the army. He wrote to Julia afterwards, In General Sherman, the country has an able and gallant defender, and your husband, a true friend. And Sherman was right that Grant's circumstances would change. Shortly thereafter, Halleck was appointed to replace McClellan as general-in-chief, 
and transferred to Washington, leaving Grant back in command. He moved his headquarters to Corinth and then to Memphis, recently taken by Union gunboats. Memphis would present Grant with a new challenge. The majority of the population, which was strongly pro-Confederate, had remained in the city despite the occupation, which left Grant essentially governing the city, responsible for listening to the complaints and petitions of the population. H.W. Brands relays the story of one Memphis citizen, a lawyer who had represented northern companies doing business in Memphis prior to the war. Now, evidence of certain debt instruments, which had been in the lawyer's custody, were seized by the Union Army upon taking the city. As the Confederate government had seized northern assets, the lawyer was concerned that he would be held personally responsible for the debts by the Confederate government when it retook the city. Emphasis on when. As Grant recalls the story, quote, His impudence was so sublime that I was rather amused than indignant. I told him, however, that if he would remain in Memphis, I did not believe the Confederate government would ever molest him, unquote. Due to the strong rebel sympathies of the population and the presence of rebel spies, Grant issued orders suppressing the Memphis press, uh, which must have pleased Sherman, and stating that any supporters of guerrilla fighters would be treated the same as the fighters themselves. Any family members of anyone involved with the Confederate government or military were required to either take a loyalty oath or leave the city. Union policy toward private property in the South had initially been fairly soft, particularly when McClellan was calling the shots. But as the war progressed and McClellan was demoted from his position as general-in-chief in favor of Halleck, confiscation of civilian property became more and more common. A substantial portion of that property came in the form of slaves, which were now being commandeered and put to work by the Union Army. Emancipation still wasn't a stated goal of the war, but in occupied areas it was seen as a strategic means of weakening the rebels. Grant was eager and willing to put this change of policy into practice. In a letter to a family member, he summed up his position by saying his priority is, quote, to put down the rebellion. I have no hobby of my own with regard to the Negro, either to affect his freedom or to continue his bondage. I am using them as teamsters, hospital attendants, company cooks, and so forth, thus saving soldiers to carry the musket. I don't know what is to become of these poor people in the end, but it weakens the enemy to take them from them, unquote. As Grant saw it, every contraband, which was how the Union Army referred to emancipated slaves, put to work by the Union Army meant one more soldier in the field. And, of course, the inverse was true as well. Taking slave manpower away from the rebels could potentially reduce the size of rebel armies by requiring men who would otherwise be soldiers to do the manual labor previously performed by a slave. After the Emancipation Proclamation was released, uh, Grant had an opinion about what to do about the former slaves behind Union lines who had been freed. The freedmen were in the difficult position of having to provide for themselves after having spent their entire lives as slaves. To his friend and supporter, Representative Elihu Washburn, Grant wrote, quote, It is earnestly recommended that Negroes who can will make contracts to labor for their former masters. When such contracts cannot be made, then to hire themselves to such persons as are willing to employ their services, unquote. And if employment couldn't be found, Grant favored setting up union work camps where former slaves could receive food and shelter in exchange for their labor. Grant was starting to come around to the abolitionist position. As he wrote to Washburn, quote, I never was an abolitionist, not even what would be called anti-slavery. But I try to judge fairly and honestly, 
and it became patent to my mind early in the rebellion that the North and South could never live at peace with each other except as one nation, and that without slavery. As anxious as I am to see peace reestablished, I would not therefore be willing to see any settlement until this question is forever settled." Unquote. So in Grant's mind, the country could only prosper if it was unified, and now that it had come to blows, it could only be unified again without slavery. So the war shouldn't end without finally putting an end to slavery as an institution. Now, this is a significant shift in Grant's thinking, because the Democratic Party, which Grant had previously supported, uh, notwithstanding his vote for Lincoln, was advocating peace through negotiation, which would almost certainly require leaving slavery in place. So with Grant thinking that the war shouldn't end until slavery ended, he was more in line with the Republican position. Of course, the military and political advantages gained by freeing contraband didn't come without drawbacks. It meant more mouths to feed, but probably more important to Grant, it had a negative effect on the morale of some of the northern soldiers. The anti-war northerners, uh, called copperheads, pointed to the policy as proof that the true purpose of the war was emancipation, not preservation of the Union. So the abolitionists had been arguing that all along, but many of the volunteers were willing to fight and die to save the Union, but not to free slaves. At one point, so many soldiers in two regiments from southern Illinois deserted rather than help free the slaves, as they put it, that Grant had no choice but to recognize that the regiments no longer existed and disband them. But the loss of two regiments wasn't going to slow Grant down. And he preferred to focus his energies on military matters rather than civil administration anyway. So in September, he came up with a plan to work with Generals Edward Ord and William Rosecrans, uh, who were now reporting to Grant, to trap Sterling Price's rebel army near Iuka, Mississippi. Price had taken that railroad town uh, from a small Union occupying force on September 14th. Grant's plan was to have Ord approach from the north and Rosecrans from the south so that they simultaneously attacked Price in Iuka from both directions. Ord arrived on the 18th, and in combination with Grant, uh, they tried to get a psychological advantage on Price before the fighting commenced. You see, Grant had received a tremendously inaccurate dispatch about the results of the battle between McClellan and Lee near Sharpsburg, Maryland. According to the report, Lee's entire army had been destroyed, and the war in the East was all but over. So Grant passed the report on to Ord, who in turn forwarded it to Price uh, with a little of his own editorializing. Quote, I think this battle decides the war finally. Upon being satisfied of its truth, General Price, or whoever commands here, will avoid useless bloodshed and lay down his arms. There is not the slightest doubt of the dispatch in my hand. Unquote. But Price wasn't impressed, and he probably didn't believe the dispatch was any more accurate than Grant thought it to be. So in his reply, uh, which interestingly employs the third person, uh, Price states, If the facts were as stated in those dispatches, they would only move him and his soldiers to greater exertions on behalf of their country. Neither he nor they will ever lay down their arms, as humanely suggested by General Ord, until the independence of the Confederate States shall have been acknowledged by the United States. So the psychological warfare having proved unsuccessful, Grant directed Ord to proceed with the attack, but warned him that Rosecrans was running behind. So Ord was to move toward the town from the north, and upon hearing the cannon fire indicating that Rosecrans had arrived and had engaged Price to the south, come in for the kill on Price's rear. 
Ord met little resistance in his advance, but he called a halt when he didn't hear Rosecrans. Meanwhile, Price had turned south and was engaging Rosecrans, driving old Rosie back with no interference from Ord. Grant was pretty unhappy with the poor coordination, but he figured that both columns were still in position, so first thing the next morning, he instructed Ord to get your troops up and attack as soon as possible. He did, and so did Rosecrans. But all they found was an empty town. Price, uh, having realized that he was in a precarious position, had evacuated during the night. Grant ordered Rosecrans to pursue, but when he ran into an ambush a few miles down the road, Rosecrans gave up the chase. Price's plan was he wanted to combine with Earl Van Dorn and retake Corinth, previously abandoned by Beauregard. So on October 3rd, the combined army of 22,000 rebels attacked Rosecrans, who was entrenched two miles outside of Corinth, in works that were previously constructed by Beauregard to defend against Halleck's attack that never came. Unbeknownst to Price, Rosecrans had consolidated the local Union forces, so instead of the 15,000 defenders Price and Van Dorn were expecting, Rosecrans was defending with a little more than 23,000 men, over 1,000 more than the attacking rebels. When the attack came, Rosecrans drove Price back, but he failed to immediately pursue. Grant's object uh, in the operations around Iuka and Corinth had been to destroy Price's army, not simply to control the geography. So Grant, uh, who hadn't been present for either battle, was disappointed with the result despite the victory. He ordered a withdrawal, uh, which prompted Halleck, who had himself been reluctant to pursue after Shiloh, to criticize Grant for not following the defeated army into Mississippi. Grant responded that without secure supply lines, his army, quote, could not subsist itself on the country except in forage. Disaster would follow in the end, unquote. Halleck and Lincoln were now a little concerned about Grant's sudden reticence, but the president remained satisfied uh, with his overall performance and his willingness to fight. And so Lincoln gave Grant command of the expansive new Department of Tennessee, which included western Tennessee, northern Mississippi, southern Illinois, and western Kentucky. Rather than being overwhelmed or intimidated by the vast terrain which he was now responsible for, Grant immediately began to plan. And within his new territory, there was one location that stood out, one goal that must be achieved. He had to take Vicksburg, Mississippi. But before we dive into Vicksburg, we need to mention something uh, for which Grant has received a tremendous amount of criticism over the years, even from his otherwise defenders. The incident involved the cotton trade. Grant believed, correctly, that the revenue from the cotton that was being sold throughout his department was being used to support the Confederate military. So he wanted to prohibit, or at least restrict, any cotton sales in territory under the occupation of the Union Army. The administration wouldn't allow that, because it could potentially alienate the British and French, who relied on southern cotton. And avoiding foreign intervention was as much a priority for Washington as enlisting it was for Richmond. So Grant then issued an order requiring all cotton sales to be made using U.S. currency rather than gold, because it would be more difficult for the rebels to turn federal paper money into war supplies. But that order was also overturned by the civilian government. And so Grant decided that he would target the merchants involved in the trade rather than the trade itself. And as it turns out, many of the traders dealing in cotton in occupied territories were Jewish. Grant first directed General Stephen Hurlbut to, quote, refuse all permits to come south of Jackson 
the Israelites especially should be kept out, unquote. And in another dispatch, Grant said of the Jewish traders, quote, they are such an intolerable nuisance that the department must be purged of them, unquote. And then when Grant's father, Jesse, opportunistically entered into a contract with a Jewish-owned firm to trade in cotton within Grant's department, Grant lost his cool. So intending to curtail the cotton trade and thereby deprive the enemy of the capital it generated, Grant entered his notorious General Order Number 11. So what did the order say? It read, quote, The Jews as a class violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department and also department orders are hereby expelled from the department, unquote. Thus, it barred any and all Jewish people, not just traders, from entering the Department of Tennessee, and any already within the department were ordered to leave within 24 hours. As you might suspect, the order didn't play well in Washington. Lincoln revoked it pretty much immediately upon learning of it. Halleck sent a dispatch to Grant stating, quote, The president had no exception to your expelling traders or Jewish peddlers, which I suppose was the object of your order. But as it in terms prescribes an entire religious class, some of whom are fighting in our ranks, the president deemed it necessary to revoke it, unquote. So yeah, the fact that the order effectively banned some of Grant's own soldiers from being in the department suggests that Grant was telling the truth when he later noted that the order was issued and sent without any reflection, unquote. And now that we have one of Grant's lowlights out of the way, uh, we'll move on to one of his greatest highlights, the Vicksburg campaign. This was the campaign in which Grant truly set himself apart as a military leader. Union naval superiority was established early in the war, and that was as true with the freshwater navies as it was with the coastal blockade. Union gunboats had control of nearly the entire Mississippi River, except for a stretch of about 100 miles. Well, 100 miles as the crow flies. The actual length of the winding river was much, much longer. Through Mississippi and Louisiana between Vicksburg, Mississippi and Port Hudson, Louisiana. If the river could be completely shut down, the Confederacy would be split in two. Troops and supplies from Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas would not be able to move east, and vice versa, and rebel communications would be much more difficult. And the only thing preventing total Union control of the Big River was Vicksburg, a fortress city sitting atop a bluff overlooking a river bend, and described by Jefferson Davis as the Gibraltar of the Confederacy. Heavy artillery on the bluff commanded the river and made riverboat passage beyond Vicksburg extremely dangerous. Thus, the strategic importance of Vicksburg was twofold. Not only would taking the fortress split the Confederacy in half, it would allow for reliable transportation of Union men and supplies from the Midwest downriver to the Deep South, especially New Orleans. As Lincoln put it, Vicksburg is the key. The war can never be brought to a close until that key is in our pocket. Or in Halleck's terms, the opening of the Mississippi River would be to us of more advantage than the capture of 40 Richmonds. But taking Vicksburg would be no small task. Not only was it well garrisoned and armed and in a highly defensible position, the swampy surrounding terrain made any troop movements through the area problematic. Illinois lawyer politician John McClernand, the former House member who had caused Grant heartburn at Fort Donelson, wanted the first crack at the Vicksburg nut. McClernand complained that he was tired of furnishing brains for Grant's army. And so he used his political connections to lobby for and receive from the Lincoln administration permission to raise an independent command intended to move from Memphis further down south and take Vicksburg from the river. 
and this all without anyone bothering to inform Grant, who was supposedly in command of that entire department. Predictably, Grant was irritated by the political interference, stating his oft-repeated line, two commanders on the same field are always one too many. Kind of like how they say a football team with two starting quarterbacks really has none. But to the extent that Lincoln and Halleck were concerned that Grant's fighting spirit had dwindled, the thought of McClernand taking the lead in capturing Vicksburg and getting the credit for it had reignited it. Grant didn't just mistrust McClernand as a commander. He seems to have just genuinely disliked him. He viewed him as an arrogant braggart who was less concerned about the war itself than about advancing his political career. And so Grant did what any self-respecting department commander in his shoes would have done. After confirming with Halleck that he had, quote, command over all federal troops in your department and permission to fight the enemy where you please, unquote, he sent his buddy Sherman up to Memphis to hijack McClernand's army and begin the campaign before McClernand arrived. Now, objectively, this looks like a real jerk move, but Grant would offer this justification in his memoirs, quote, I doubted McClernand's fitness, and I had good reason to believe that in forestalling him, I was by no means giving offense to those whose authority to command was above both him and me, unquote. In the meantime, uh, Grant, who had just been ordered by Washington to put the Illinois politician in command of one of the four corps of Grant's newly named Army of the Tennessee, cynically directed McClernand to report to Memphis, writing, I hope you will find all the preliminary preparations completed on your arrival and the expedition ready to move. And I guess in an Obi-Wan Kenobi way, this was kind of true from a certain point of view. The preliminary preparations had been completed and the expedition was ready to move. It had just already started moving before McClernand got to Memphis. So the Vicksburg campaign began with Grant moving slowly down the Mississippi Central Railroad while Sherman approached Vicksburg from the northeast using the Yazoo River. Grant hoped that he would distract the local southern commander, John C. Pemberton, so that Sherman's army could make an unimpeded march to Vicksburg. Kind of a jab by Grant to get Pemberton to put up his guard so that Sherman could deliver the hook to the body. Pemberton commanded what was billed as the Army of Mississippi, and he was a natural fit for the job, a southerner through and through. Born and raised in the heart of Dixie, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Pemberton was an 1837 West Point graduate who married into a Southern family while stationed at Fort Monroe in Virginia. When the war broke out, he stayed loyal to his wife's family while both of his brothers fought for the Union. But Grant wasn't overly concerned about Pemberton. In fact, according to his subordinates, there was only one Confederate general, the mention of whose name would make Grant uneasy. And that was the man who had already earned the nickname the Wizard of the Saddle, Brigadier General Nathan Bedford Forrest. According to Grant, Forrest was, quote, amenable to no known rules of procedure, was a law unto himself for all military acts, and was constantly doing the unexpected at all times and places, unquote. And so it was, while Grant tried to draw Pemberton into battle, Forrest kneecapped him by cutting off his supply and communication lines and working with Van Dorn, destroying the Union Supply Depot at Holly Springs thereby forcing Grant to call off the assault on Vicksburg and live off the land until the supply problems could be corrected. Though certainly not Forrest's intent, this proved, in a way, to be a blessing in disguise, as it taught Grant a valuable lesson. As he hastily withdrew to reconnect with supply lines, Grant reported that he was, quote, amazed at the quantity of supplies the country afforded. It showed that we could have subsisted off the country for two months, unquote. 
So rather than the disaster he had previously predicted to Halleck, Grant had learned that a Union army could survive away from its supply lines by coercing the locals to extend their famous Southern hospitality. But as important as that lesson would be, it didn't help Sherman, who was now without supply lines of his own or any support from Grant. And with the telegraph cables cut, Grant was unable to inform Sherman that he wouldn't be getting the help he was counting on. So left high and dry, Sherman would be forced to retreat after his defeat at Chickasaw Bayou, and upon his return, reluctantly turn over the command to McClernand, who outranked him. After having seen him at work at Belmont and Fort Donelson, Grant had zero confidence in McClernand's abilities as an officer. So he personally assumed command of the Vicksburg operations, wiring Halleck, quote, it would have been criminal to send troops under these circumstances into such danger, unquote. The circumstances being McClernand's incompetence. Incidentally, uh, Admiral Foote and most of the other generals in the Army of the Tennessee shared Grant's opinion of McClernand. Throughout the campaign, uh, the Illinois politician would continue to be a pain in Grant's neck. Despite Halleck's confirmation that Grant commanded all troops in the department, McClernand insisted on acting as though he held an independent command, working with Grant, but not actually part of Grant's army. He issued orders under the heading Army of the Mississippi, a designation he had unilaterally adopted for his corps. He penned a letter to Grant, complaining that the department commander was issuing orders directly to the officers in the Army of the Mississippi instead of issuing them through him. Grant didn't have time for this, so he referred the matter to Washington, confident that he would have Lincoln's support, despite the president's prior political relationship with McClernand. And as it turns out, Grant was correct. Lincoln also didn't have time for in-house squabbling and refused to intervene. Grant was in charge, and it was time to focus on taking Vicksburg. McClernand is, is like the guy in the office who is more concerned about who gets the credit or blame than about actually accomplishing the task at hand. As a brief footnote, later that year, Grant was able to get rid of McClernand when the politician violated a War Department order forbidding publication of any official reports uh, by having what was billed as a congratulatory order to his corps, but what looked more like a campaign ad, printed in a Memphis newspaper. Grant didn't hesitate to relieve McClernand of command after confirming that the order was legitimate. McClernand once again appealed to Lincoln, hoping for solidarity between Illinois politicians, but once again, the president wasn't getting involved. Lincoln's response read, quote, I doubt whether your present position is more painful to you than to myself. Grateful for the patriotic stand so early taken by you in this life-and-death struggle of the nation, I have done whatever appeared practicable to advance you and the public interest together. However, for me to force you back upon General Grant would be forcing him to resign. I cannot give you a new command because we have no forces, but such as already have commanders." Unquote. Yeah, Lincoln was much too smart to risk losing one of the few generals he had who could claim to be both competent and aggressive, just to protect the political opportunist. Okay, end of footnote, back to the Vicksburg campaign. Grant would later write that the smart move after the initial setback, from a purely tactical view, would have been to withdraw to Memphis and start over, slowly working their way down using the railroad. That was the course that Sherman favored, but there were more considerations than just tactics. As Grant put it, quote, it was my judgment at the time that to make a backward movement as long as that from Vicksburg to Memphis would be interpreted by many of those yet full of hope for the preservation of the Union as a defeat, and that the draft would be resisted, desertions ensue, 
and the power to capture and punish deserters lost. There was nothing left to be done but to go forward to a decisive victory. This was in my mind from the moment I took command in person, unquote. A reset would uh, do too much damage to public opinion and the morale of the men. It was Vicksburg or bust. But Grant's dilemma was how to get to dry ground on the east side of the Mississippi so that he could get at Vicksburg without appearing to be in retreat. Crossing upstream would mean that the army had to march through 50 miles of swampy river delta with little to no roads to work with to establish supply lines and flooding an ever-present danger. Or they could cross downstream, which meant running the Confederate gun batteries at Vicksburg so as to get the boats in position to ferry the men across the mile-wide mighty Mississippi River. Now, the problem with the second option, and the reason Grant didn't go that route right away, is that it would have to be a one-way trip for the gunboats. Running Vicksburg's defenses going downriver uh, with the current was one thing, and dangerous enough, but getting past the Confederate guns coming back north against the current just wasn't going to happen, and Grant knew it. So if the expedition didn't result in the capture of Vicksburg, he wouldn't be able to get those boats back to Tennessee or anywhere else north of Vicksburg. And it was risky for the Army, too. Uh, as James McPherson puts it, and I'm talking about the historian, not the general, once across, quote, the Army would have to operate deep in enemy territory without a supply line against a force of unknown strength which held interior lines and could be reinforced, unquote. And so Grant got creative in his attempts to come up with some other method to get to Vicksburg. He'd end up trying six or seven different unorthodox approaches, uh, none of which worked. But the important thing is that he wasn't afraid to fail, and he kept his men's head in the game. He'd try an idea, and if it didn't work, move on to something else, always remaining determined that he would succeed eventually, and keeping his men thinking positively too. He tried changing the course of the Mississippi River, by assigning 4,000 men to dig canals, uh, but high water hindered the operation. He also tried digging a canal from the river through the bayou to Lake Providence, uh, northwest of Vicksburg, which would have allowed uh, access to the Red River and Port Hudson down in Louisiana, but the waterways weren't navigable by the transport boats. He also blew up a river levee at Moon Lake in an effort to open up a pass to the Tallahatchie River, but low-hanging trees impeded the boat's navigation of the pass, and rebels dropped additional trees to block the path. Uh, and also the impromptu construction of the Confederate Fort Pemberton allowed the rebels to defeat the joint Army-Navy expedition. But despite the repeated disappointments, the Union soldiers remained confident in their leader. One remarked, quote, Everything that Grant directs is right. His soldiers believe in him. In our private talks amongst ourselves, I never heard a single soldier speak in doubt of Grant. Quote. Shelby Foote quotes another description. Here was no McClellan, begging the boys to allow him to light his cigar on theirs, or inquiring as to what regiment that exceedingly fine marching company belonged. There was no nonsense, no sentiment, only a plain businessman of the Republic, there for the one purpose of getting that command over the river in the shortest time possible. The various schemes went on from late December 1862 until April of 1863. The whole while, his army was ravaged by smallpox, pneumonia, typhoid, and dysentery as a result of the wet, muddy conditions. And the politicians in Washington continued to pressure Lincoln to remove him. Once again, the criticism was focused on Grant's supposed drinking problem. But Lincoln still had Grant's back. When one of the general's critics remarked on the drinking, 
the president lightheartedly responded that if Grant was drinking, he'd like to know which brand so he could send some to his other generals. Lincoln was well aware of the conspiracy among the politicians and military brass to bring Grant down. Privately, he sympathized, quote, I think Grant has hardly a friend left except myself, unquote. But as it turns out, that would be enough. Lincoln wouldn't allow the political pressure to derail a proven winner. The president said, what I want is generals who will fight battles and win victories. Grant has done this, and I propose to stand by him. Even so, Lincoln did accede to the request of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton to send an investigator from the War Department to keep an eye on Grant. Charles Dana's mission, officially, was to investigate problems in the Army of the Tennessee's paymaster's office. But in actuality, he was sent to determine if the concerns about Grant's drinking were legitimate. If Stanton's intent was to dig up dirt on Grant uh, to support removal, his plan backfired. Dana almost immediately recognized that Grant was an asset that should not be wasted, and his messages to Washington were complimentary of the general. Dana reports, quote, Grant was an uncommon fellow, the most modest, the most disinterested, and the most honest man I ever knew, with a temper that nothing could disturb, and judgment that was judicial in its comprehensiveness and wisdom. Not a great man, except morally, not an original or brilliant man, but sincere, thoughtful, deep, and gifted with courage that never faltered when the time came to risk all. He went in like a simple-hearted, unaffected, unpretending hero, whom no ill omens could deject, and no triumph unduly exult. A social, friendly man, too, fond of a pleasant joke, and also ready with one, but liking above all a long chat of an evening, and ready to sit up with you all night, talking in the cool breeze in front of his tent. Not a man of sentimentality, not demonstrative in friendship, but always holding to his friends, and just, even to the enemies he hated." Unquote. Yeah, not exactly the kind of report that's going to get a guy fired. And even more, rather than being suspicious of Dana, Grant welcomed him into his circle, and the two were soon good friends. But Grant still did have the problem of getting at Vicksburg. He was spending nearly every day alone in the cabin serving as his headquarters, studying topographical maps. Corps Commander James McPherson, not the historian, checked in on him, worried he was exhausting himself and offering to lend a hand. Grant told him if he wanted to help, he should give him a dozen cigars and leave him alone. And so, after having tried everything else and thoroughly studying the problem, Grant decided to use the plan that he had been trying to avoid. The army would march south on the west side of the river through the difficult terrain, while the gunboats would run Vicksburg's batteries as covertly as possible in the dead of night, and then once through, ferry the men across the river south of Vicksburg at Hard Times, Louisiana. They would land at Grand Gulf, establishing a base. One corps would move south to team with General Nathaniel Banks in taking Port Hudson, Louisiana, which was the other remaining rebel stronghold on the river, while the rest fortified Grand Gulf as a jumping-off point. Then, once Port Hudson fell, they could be supplied by river from New Orleans, and the combined force, including Banks, would take Vicksburg. Sherman didn't like the plan, and he let Grant know it. He again recommended to Grant that they withdraw back to Memphis and reestablish secure supply lines before proceeding. But he couldn't persuade Grant, who argued, quote, If we went back so far as Memphis, it would discourage the people so much that bases of supplies would be of no use. Neither men to hold them nor supplies to put in them would be furnished. The problem for us was to move forward to a decisive victory, or our cause was lost. 
No progress was being made in any other field, and we had to go on. So Grant was all in, and he was willing to put his position on the line for the plan. Naval cooperation would be essential, and Rear Admiral David Porter was willing to try Grant's plan, though he did offer a warning, quote, You must recollect that when these gunboats once go below, we will give up all hope of ever getting them up again. April 16, 1863 was the chosen night. Porter led seven ironclads, 12 barges, and their support boats through the gauntlet. The group was quickly spotted and sustained an hour-and-a-half artillery barrage, with Vicksburg's guns firing 525 shots and landing 68 hits. But the squadron made the run with no deaths, and only one lost boat, a steamer called the Henry Clay. Six more transports made the run a few nights later, five of which made it through. By the end of the month, Grant had two-thirds of his army ready to be ferried across the river 30 miles to the south of Vicksburg. Grant then made what turned out to be a brilliant decision to send Cavalry Commander Benjamin Grierson on a raid into the heart of Mississippi to destroy southern supply lines, just as Bedford Forrest had done to him. The raid had the dual objectives of interfering with the supplies of the army defending Vicksburg and diverting the local rebel cavalry. It would end up being a success on both counts. Before crossing, the gunboats made a trip downriver to test the Confederate defenses at Grand Gulf, the chosen landing spot, and it didn't go so well. The boats took a beating and were thoroughly repulsed by the defenders. So Grant ordered a small detachment to cross in search of a sympathetic local guide who could provide some advice as to a better place to land. They came back with a local slave who pointed them to Bruinsburg, a few miles further down the river, but where they could find high ground, which was less susceptible to flooding, and a good road to reach Grand Gulf. They landed at Bruinsburg on April 30th, and with the local Confederate cavalry fruitlessly chasing Grierson, Grant's force was able to cross the river and land unopposed. Grant described his situation upon successfully crossing. Quote, I was now in the enemy's country, with a vast river and the stronghold of Vicksburg between me and my base of supplies. But I was on high ground and on the same side of the river as the enemy. All the campaigns, labors, hardships, and exposures from the month of December previous to this time that had been made and endured were for the accomplishment of this one object. Unquote. The march to Vicksburg began with a pit stop at Fort Gibson, defended by four rebel brigades uh, commanded by General John Bowen. McClernand was tasked with leading the initial assault. He managed to push back the vastly outnumbered rebels, then, as he had done at Belmont, began giving celebratory speeches until Grant arrived and informed him that the defending force had simply fallen back to a stronger position, not fled. McPherson then directed a turning movement on the new rebel position, threatening their lines of withdrawal. Bowen realized he was about to be cut off from the rest of the army at Vicksburg, and so he ordered a retreat, along with the abandonment and destruction of Grand Gulf. Grant sent his report to Halleck afterwards, quote, Our victory has been most complete, and the enemy thoroughly demoralized, the defense was a very bold one and well carried out, but my force was too heavy for his and composed of hardy and well-disciplined men who know no defeat and are not willing to learn what it is, unquote. At Grand Gulf, Grant received a three-week-old letter from Nathaniel Banks, the Union general uh, who he had planned on combining with to take Port Hudson, Louisiana. Banks reported that he had run into a delay and had to deal with threats to his rear, and he wouldn't be ready for another month. 
Grant didn't want to wait around, partly because he was worried that the Confederates would send reinforcements, but also because Banks outranked him and would therefore probably get more of the credit when Vicksburg fell. Well, also, Grant just didn't like waiting around, so he decided to set out for Vicksburg without Banks. As he later explained the decision, to wait for his cooperation would have detained me for at least a month. Reinforcements would not have reached 10,000 men. The enemy would have strengthened his position and been reinforced by more men than Banks could have brought. I therefore determined to move independently from Banks, cut loose from my base, destroy the rebel force in rear of Vicksburg, and invest or capture the city. There were two rebel armies in the area, Pemberton's headquartered at Vicksburg and Joseph Johnston's at Jackson, Mississippi. So Grant provocatively positioned his army directly in between the two before deciding to move on Johnston. This left Pemberton in his rear, and therefore his supply lines were vulnerable. But as we just mentioned, Grant had recently learned that his army could thrive by commandeering food and supplies from the locals. He arrived at Jackson on the morning of May 14th, but instead of the vigorous defense of the state capital he might have expected Johnston to undertake, he found that Johnston had ordered only enough resistance to delay Grant while he got out of town. Grant easily took the city, spending the night in the house that Johnston had used as his headquarters the night before. So Johnston, having politely excused himself from resisting Grant's plan, Grant headed back toward Vicksburg while leaving Sherman behind to destroy the railroads in Jackson. As he was prone to do, Sherman went above and beyond the call of duty, destroying anything that was of any kind of strategic value. And what was of strategic value was up to Sherman. So in addition to the railroads and all the bridges and factories in town, uh, he also destroyed quite a few houses and hotels for good measure. Now, as it turns out, Johnston didn't abandon Jackson because he was afraid to fight. He just didn't want to fight on Grant's terms. What he had in mind was to combine with Pemberton first and then fight Grant with the consolidated force. But Grant knew what Johnston had in mind. And it wasn't because he had some kind of supernatural ability to get into his opponent's minds. It was because the messenger that Johnston had sent to Pemberton to inform him of the plan was a Union spy. So instead of going straight to Pemberton in Vicksburg with the message that Johnston's force would be moving northwest to combine with the Vicksburg garrison, the messenger took a detour, let Grant know what was up, and then found Pemberton. Upon receiving Johnston's message... Pemberton determined to take the majority of his men, about 22,000, outside the safety of the Vicksburg Fortress and march east to meet up with Johnston. Grant's spy let him know that Pemberton had left the fort, and so Grant marched with his 32,000 men in pursuit of Pemberton in hopes of fighting him before he reached Johnston. Grant would catch up with Pemberton about 20 miles east of Vicksburg at Champion Hill, which would end up being the largest battle of the Vicksburg campaign and the most decisive. Pemberton had chosen the ground, and he chose pretty well. He had his men organized in a three-mile battle line centered around the ridge of the hill. As Grant later put it, Pemberton's position was, quote, one of the highest points in that section and commands all of the ground and range, unquote. On May 16, 1863, the two armies fought a four-hour battle. Three Union columns nearly flanked Pemberton to his left, and Pemberton had to respond by extending his lines. The extension weakened his middle for the 10 a.m. attack ordered by Grant. The attack took the crest of the hill, but a subsequent Confederate counterattack reclaimed it. Grant then counterattacked the counterattack, retook the hill, and forced Pemberton to flee for the protection of Vicksburg, 
after sustaining heavy losses. Overall, Pemberton's force took 3,800 casualties to Grant's 2,400. Grant's army moved in pursuit and caught up with Pemberton the next day at the Big Black River Bridge, where the two armies would fight the last battle of the campaign before it turned into a siege. Pemberton positioned his men in fortifications on the eastern side of the bridge, which was over 1,000 feet long and 150 feet tall. They were attempting to hold the bridge to allow a division that had separated at Champion Hill to catch up and cross. Now, as it turns out, that division had decided to march toward Johnston, but Pemberton had no idea about that. The rebel position at the bridge was once again a strong one, with the men occupying rifle pits set behind water-filled ditches. Union troops charged headlong at the rebel position, partially through waist-deep water. The charge carried the breastworks, and the panic-stricken Confederates scrambled to cross the bridge, burning it down after crossing to slow down further pursuit. Pemberton's army arrived back in Vicksburg that evening, discouraged after having lost two battles on consecutive days. Grant constructed a pontoon bridge and followed, now prepared to take the vital Confederate stronghold. Upon arrival outside of Vicksburg, Sherman and Grant inspected the defenses. They saw seven miles of fortifications along commanding ridges, both sides of the line anchored on 200-foot bluffs on either side of the city. Interconnected trenches would allow for overlapping fire, and the ground itself would prove difficult with steep hills and ravines. Confederate snipers were also positioned up and down the lines. Even so, they were confident. Sherman, who had openly doubted Grant's plan before the operation began, commented to his friend, quote, Until this moment, I never thought your expedition a success. I never could see the end clearly until now. But this is a campaign. This is a success, even if we never take the town. Unquote. Grant didn't want to wait around for a long siege. He had the momentum and the numbers, with Pemberton down to around 18,000 troops after his losses at Champion Hill and Big Black River Bridge. Grant also believed that the rebels had lost their will to fight, after witnessing the hasty retreat the day before. So he ordered a May 19th attack on the Confederate fortifications. But he had been mistaken about the morale of the Southerners, and he had underestimated the strength of Vicksburg's defense. The attack was easily repulsed, with nearly 1,000 Union casualties compared to hardly any for the defenders. Now Grant was concerned that if he waited around too long, Johnston would be able to come to Pemberton's aid. Johnston was leading an army nearly as large as Grant's, if he could attack Grant's rear, with the Army's front occupied with Pemberton and Vicksburg, things could get ugly. But Grant needn't have worried. Vicksburg was not Vienna, and Johnston was not John Sobieski, and he was in no hurry to fight Grant or to relieve Pemberton. In fact, upon learning of Pemberton's situation, Johnston ordered Pemberton, who was his subordinate, to evacuate Vicksburg to the northeast. But Pemberton had already been ordered by Jefferson Davis to hold the city at all costs, and he wasn't about to disobey a direct order from the president. Grant scheduled a second infantry assault for May 22nd. This one was better planned and better coordinated and supported with artillery, uh, including fire from Porter's gunboats designed to soften up the defenses. The attack began at precisely 10 a.m. Grant actually ordered his officers to synchronize their watches Magnum P.I. style, and they attacked along a three-mile front. The fighting went on for nearly four hours, but again, it achieved nothing. The Confederate fortifications were just too strong to overcome. Having sustained over 3,000 casualties to less than 500 Confederate, Grant called it a day. A siege it would have to be. 
Yet despite the ineffectiveness, Grant didn't think that the two assaults had been a mistake. As he later described it, his soldiers, quote, believed they could carry the works in their front, and they would not have worked so patiently in the trenches if they had not been allowed to try. Many of the 3,000 Union casualties from the May 22nd assault remained on the field, dead or dying, stuck in the no-man's land between the Union lines and the Confederate fortifications. Normal protocol in that situation would have called for Grant to request a brief ceasefire so that the dead could be buried and the injured carried out. But Grant stubbornly refused to request any such truce, concerned it would amount to displaying weakness in the face of the enemy. So after three days had passed, most if not all the wounded men had already died, and the smell of death in the hot Mississippi air uh, became nearly unbearable. On May 25th, Pemberton sent a message to Grant, quote, In the name of humanity, I have the honor to propose a cessation of hostilities for two hours and a half, that you may be enabled to remove your dead and dying men, unquote. Grant agreed, uh, like he was doing Pemberton some sort of favor, but it's hard to tell just how many wounded men suffered or died unnecessarily as a result of Grant's hard-headedness. Shelby Foote perfectly describes how this episode demonstrates seemingly contradictory traits in Grant's personality. Foote writes, quote, He would berate, in at least one case, attack with his fists any man he saw abusing a dumb animal. He had, it was said to his credit, no stomach for fighting. He disliked above all to ride over a field where there had been recent heavy fighting. He would not eat a piece of meat until it had been cooked to a char, past any sign of blood or pinkness. Yet this he could do to his own men without expressed regret or concern. Unquote. So the truce concluded, Grant ordered his men to start digging in. The plan was to encircle the city in progressively tighter and tighter rings of trenches until Pemberton was forced to tap out. The siege of Vicksburg wasn't pretty. Between the gunboats and the army artillery, Union forces fired over 22,000 shells into the city during the less than two-month siege. But the shelling wasn't much more than an inconvenience to the rebel soldiers and private citizens occupying the town. Now, the killer was starvation and disease. Pemberton had essentially no way to get food or supplies into Vicksburg. He had plenty of armaments on hand, that wasn't a problem, but in no time his men were down to quarter rations and suffering from scurvy, malaria, and dysentery. Nearly half of Pemberton's force went down sick. The only thing keeping them going was the hope that Johnston's relief force would be arriving any day now. But Johnston wasn't coming. On June 15th, he advised Jefferson Davis, I consider saving Vicksburg hopeless. By that point, Grant had also realized that Johnston wouldn't be riding to the rescue, despite the hopes of all those holding out in Vicksburg. He remarked to a staff officer who had expressed concern about an attack by Johnston on the besiegers' rear, quote, No, we are the only fellows who want to get in there. The rebels who are in now want to get out, and those who are out want to stay out. If Johnston tries to cut his way in, we'll let him do it, and then see that he don't get out. You say he has 30,000 men with him. That will give us 30,000 more prisoners than we now have, unquote. Meanwhile, Grant was receiving reinforcements from Halleck so as to allow the 12 miles of trenches now encircling the city to be fully occupied. In contrast to the quick action of the preceding campaign, uh, Grant found the siege to be a little dull. And so with that in mind, it's unsurprising that he briefly fell off the wagon. 
He had previously promised Lieutenant Colonel John Rollins, who was his adjutant and close friend, that he wouldn't drink during the campaign. Rollins was a 32-year-old lawyer from Grant's adopted hometown of Galena, Illinois, whose father had died from alcoholism. So Rollins viewed the enforcement of Grant's pledge as his personal duty and one that he took very seriously. The setback to Grant's sobriety occurred when an inspection up the Yazoo River without Rollins turned into a two-day bender. Uh, We're not going to go into the details, but suffice to say, if the recollection of a reporter who was along for the ride is any indication, uh, Grant was pretty well hammered for the two days straight. The story didn't come out until after Grant's death. Uh, Neither the reporter nor Charles Dana, who, who was also along, said anything to anyone in Washington or otherwise. And both men remained friendly with Grant afterwards. Nonetheless, uh, we should note that some of Grant's supporters denied that the story was true when it was finally published some 90 years after the war. After learning of Grant's temporary failure, Rawlins scolded his superior, quote, Had you not pledged me the sincerity of your honor early last March that you would drink no more during the war and kept that pledge during your recent campaign, you would not today have stood first in the world's history as a military leader. Your only salvation depends on your strict adherence to that pledge. You cannot succeed in any other way, unquote. So it takes a lot of courage and conviction and also a pretty strong friendship for a subordinate to admonish a superior officer the way that Rollins was not afraid to scold Grant. Charles Dana, the War Department spy turned friend of Grant's, remarked of Rollins, quote, He bossed everything at Grant's headquarters. I've heard him curse at Grant when, according to his judgment, the general was doing something he thought he had better not do, unquote. But Grant was fortunate to have Rollins helping him stay dry, and he does seem to have appreciated it. Nonetheless, he was going to have to channel his boredom into something else, or cure his boredom by shortening the siege. Once again, Grant wasn't short on creativity, or perhaps more accurately, he was always ready to greenlight an unconventional plan if he thought it had any chance of success. So, foreshadowing what was to come at Petersburg, Grant approved a plan to shorten the siege by digging tunnels underneath the defensive works and then igniting powder in those tunnels. On June 25th, the explosion blew a hole in the fortifications, and Union infantry rushed in. But the rebels kept their cool and simply fell back into other trenches closer in. The plan carried the position, but it didn't achieve much else, and the siege went on. The people of Vicksburg would make do the best that they could. They began living in caves, which they referred to as bomb-proofs, to find some sort of relief from the constant shelling. This led the Union soldiers to start calling Vicksburg Prairie Dog Village. So with his men reduced to eating dogs, mules, and horses, Pemberton pleaded to Johnston for assistance. He wrote, quote, My men have been 34 days and nights in trenches without relief and the enemy within conversation distance. We are living on very reduced rations, and as you know, are entirely isolated. What aid am I to expect from you? Unquote. Johnston, who was leading a force of about 24,000, and who was being prodded by Jefferson Davis to come to Vicksburg's relief, replied that he had no aid to offer. And so, with his sick and starving men in no shape for a breakout, and with no hope of assistance, Pemberton was faced with a choice between surrender or starvation. He chose the former. On July 3rd, after resisting the siege for 45 days, and with his officers' unanimous approval, Pemberton sent General John Bowen, who had led the defense at Fort Gibson and Grand Gulf, and who was a friend of Grant's when they had both lived in Missouri, 
to ask Grant for terms. Bowen was suffering from dysentery, and he would die within a month, but he agreed to go, believing that his relationship with Grant might inspire generosity. But characteristically, Grant responded that no terms would be offered other than unconditional surrender. Quote, The useless effusion of blood you propose stopping by this course can be ended at any time you may choose by an unconditional surrender of the city and garrison. Unquote. But, off the record, he did tell Bowen that he had been impressed by the rebels' courage and endurance during the siege, so he promised to treat them with respect, and verbally agreed to meet with Pemberton. At the meeting, Grant again insisted on unconditional surrender, to which Pemberton responded, quote, Then, sir, it is unnecessary that you and I should have further conversation. I can assure you, sir, you will bury many more of your men before you enter Vicksburg, unquote. But Grant was almost as ready for the siege to end as was Pemberton, so he suggested that the two break away from their subordinates and talk under the shade of an oak tree. They didn't agree to anything, but Grant did promise that he'd propose terms by that evening. At his officer's recommendation, Grant offered to parole the entire garrison, allow them to march out of the fort, the officers to keep their sidearms and one horse each, and, quote, if these conditions are accepted... Any amount of rations you may deem necessary can be taken from the stores you now have and also the necessary cooking utensils for them, unquote. Now, of course, Grant knew the rebel defenders had little to no remaining rations. Either way, unconditional surrender Grant had offered terms, but the terms weren't exactly without advantage to Grant. He wasn't in the business of supporting prisoners, so he actually preferred parole, and Pemberton knew the Union Navy didn't want to transport prisoners upriver because the defending rebels had broken the code the boats were using. To ensure acceptance, Grant ordered Rollins to have the Union pickets communicate the terms to the Confederate pickets, figuring that Pemberton would have faced a mutiny if he had rejected what ended up being fairly generous terms. Grant's take on it was, I was very glad to give the garrison at Vicksburg the terms I did. To have shipped the Graybacks off to Illinois and Ohio would have used all the transportation we had for a month. The men had behaved so well that I did not want to humiliate them. I believed that consideration for their feelings would make them less dangerous foes during the continuance of hostilities and better citizens after the war was over. So Vicksburg was formally surrendered on July 4th, 1863, the same day as Lee's defeat at Gettysburg and the day most frequently cited as the turning point of the war. The victory continued to raise Grant's stock in the eyes of the commander-in-chief. Lincoln would admiringly remark on Grant after Vicksburg fell, quote, Look at his campaign since May 1st. Where is anything in the old world that equals it? It stamps him as the greatest general of the age, if not of the world, unquote. Lincoln was already considering bringing Grant to the East for a showdown with the Southern general whose reputation had also spread throughout the world. After his string of victories over one Union general after another, Bobby Lee had been defeated, but not destroyed, at Gettysburg. Lincoln was considerably frustrated by General Meade's failure to follow up on the Gettysburg victory. The president penned a letter to Meade stating, quote, He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably by it, unquote. Of course, Lincoln was too shrewd of a political maneuverer to risk actually sending the letter. Meade, uh, despite his hesitation, was at present the darling of the press for his victory. Of course, that would change, 
But Lincoln wouldn't risk the public relations fallout of reprimanding a successful commander fresh off a victory. Grant dismissed all the talk of his coming east to confront Lee. My going could do no possible good. They have their officers who have been brought up with that army, and to import a commander to place over them certainly would produce no good. Now, Grant was familiar with the men and officers in the Army of the Tennessee. He was comfortable out west, and he figured there was still more work to be done. So he'd stay put, for now. But that wouldn't prevent Lincoln from again rewarding Grant for his success. In October, Grant traveled to Indianapolis to meet with Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, assigned by Lincoln to inform Grant of his new command, new as in it had been created just for him. He would lead the Division of the Mississippi to include the departments of the Ohio, the Cumberland, and the Tennessee, which would in turn be commanded by Ambrose Burnside, William Rosecrans, and Grant's amigo William T. Sherman, respectively. Grant would be in command of nearly all Union Western forces. Along with the new command, Grant was also made a major general of the regular army, where previously he had been a major general of volunteers. So, if any doubt had remained, Ulysses Grant was once again one of the professionals. And that will bring a close to part two of our portrait of Ulysses Grant. We hope you'll join us next time for part three, where we see Grant ride to the rescue in Tennessee before heading east for his showdown with Robert E. Lee. But before I sign off, I want to thank all of the listeners who've expressed their support for the show. And thank all of you who have rated or reviewed the show on iTunes. I love hearing from you, and the ratings and reviews are greatly appreciated. And a special thanks to Tim and to Gail for their generous contributions. Until next time, then, thanks for listening. If you would like to contact Portraits of Blue and Gray, you can reach us by email at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Questions and comments are welcome from Yankees and Secesh alike. And remember, we always spell gray the old-fashioned way, G-R-E-Y. Visit the show's webpage at portraitsofblueandgray.podbeam.com. If you enjoyed the show and want to contribute financially, click on the Become a Patron badge at the top of the main page to visit our crowdfunding page. Or visit that page directly at patreon.podbeam.com slash blueandgray. All contributors are wholeheartedly appreciated and will be thanked by name in an upcoming episode, unless you ask us not to. Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever other app you used to find us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.